This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. Abandoned. Betrayed. Arrested. Seized. Denied. Mocked. Beaten. Spat on. Insulted. Questioned. Accused. Ridiculed. Punished. Crucified. Darkness, spirit released, veil of the temple torn, earth shook, rocks split, tombs broke open. Many confessed, many denied. Stone rolled away. He, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is risen from the dead. Friends, there is power in the cross. There is power in the blood. There is life in the resurrection. Today, for episode 62, Professor of New Testament Interpretation at Fuller Seminary, Joe B. Green, is joining me to talk about the scandal of the cross. I hope today's conversation helps you prepare your heart and mind for the events of Good Friday. Good evening, Joe. Thank you so much for being on the Grace Enough podcast. Great. Great to be with you. Let's get started by having you introduce yourself and your family and tell all of our listeners a little bit about what you do. I'm a a professor of New Testament at Fuller Seminary, and uh, I've been teaching for Fuller since 2007. And uh, I also am the dean over the PhD program in the School of Theology. So part-time administrator, mostly time professor of New Testament. My wife and I live here in Southern California. Mm. Our children are grown and uh, living back east. Oh, uh, really? In Ohio, one in Mississippi. Oh, wow. If I lived in Ohio, it's it's too gray there. I grew up in Kentucky. We'll talk <laughs> about that here in a minute. But um, I'd be wanting to move to Southern California, I think. <laughs> well, it's not a bad place to live from oh, that goodness. perspective. I Yes, we... I grew up in Kentucky and then moved to Florida and was only there for eight years before we moved here to Raleigh. But that was one of the best things. Florida's way too hot, but just the sunshine every day is such a gift. One of the big changes, it's not true anymore, but it used to be when we first moved here from Kentucky, uh, we discovered that the Weather Channel was not even available to us. Really? We didn't need it. You don't need it. That's right. I know. It's it's now available to us. But when we first moved here, it wasn't even one of the options you could choose. Oh, that's so interesting. Which, speaking of Kentucky, you were at Asbury for a few years, correct? Uh Uh-huh. I was there from 1997 to 2007. Nice. So you were in the area the same time I was at the University of Kentucky. And then my husband went to Asbury undergrad and the University of Kentucky grad Uh school. So, Uh um, Okay. 
and we got married on, you know, in Wilmore on Asbury's campus at Estes Chapel. So a lot of history there for us. Well, that's that would be right close to where uh, my office was. And so who knows? We might have crossed paths. We may have. Isn't it? Kentucky, that area is just so beautiful. It, it's it's the first place we've ever lived where you actually have seasons. Oh, so gorgeous. Rather than summer, winter, or summer, whatever we have here in Southern California. Uh, but, I mean, the trees, wonderful. Yeah, rolling hills, all the stuff. And then something else that I, when I was listening to you teach, I, I can't remember, it was on your website. I heard you say that your middle name is Bennett, and that caught my attention too, because that's my oldest son's name and my dad's name. So, Oh, my. Yeah, not last name, but first name. So, Well, it's my mother's maiden name, so I carry that with me. We could talk about other things all day. And so as we get going, talking about Easter today, will you go ahead and share a little bit of your faith journey? When did you come to know Jesus and how? Yeah, well, I grew up in West Texas, actually. I, I mentioned only because it's a pretty uh, Christian place yes. that is pretty traditional. I grew up uh, in what was then known as the Methodist Church, would eventually become the United Methodist Church. Me too. But that really didn't matter. I mean, there's certain aspects of being a Methodist in West Texas, but out in the country, it's basically traditional faith, yep. faith in Jesus, the Bible matters, you know, those, those sort of uh, bedrock things. I uh, came to know Jesus in the seventh grade. Primarily, I think, I mean, there's the influence of the church, obviously, and uh, the importance of growing up in that context. But one of the interesting things that happened, uh, this used to be a normal thing. The Gideons came to our schools and gave us all Bibles. Wow. And this was the King James Version of the Bible, which I should not have been able to read it at age, whatever that was, <laughs> right. four, uh, 14 or something, 13. But I did, and I was reading Romans. Oh, and, start with uh, the complicated In the process <laughs> of reading Romans, yeah. <laughs> in the process of reading Romans, uh, gave my life to Jesus, mm. and uh, that helped put a lot of of parts of my life together in, in ways that I didn't understand at the time. But looking back, right. I can see the path that led me there. And uh, those those days, those were those were days of revival uh, mm -hmm. through West Texas. There was a, a movement called the Lay Witness Mission Movement that went through at the time. And so we were very much engaged in various forms of discipleship, prayer, scripture, et cetera, et cetera. So those were those were important formative days. Wow, that's such a gift. I know a lot of people I hear from, they're like, you know, I didn't really, you know, put my faith in Jesus until, you know, a certain time, but I grew up, you know, learning about God's word and going to church. And I really have learned, I mean, that that's foundational. It is an incredible gift that not everybody can say they've received. And so well, I love it when people well, say I, that. I, I have these memories from early days, way before I was a seventh grader of my grandparents, mm -hmm. my grandmothers in particular, telling me stories, you know, the crossing of the Red Sea. I just took them as, of course, this is the way it is. And so those those were part of my memory, uh, part of my formation from the earliest times I can remember. Yeah. Well, as we approach Easter, so many Christians are, we're going back, we're reading the Gospels, we're really contemplating, thinking through the crucifixion and the resurrection and just how, you know, it is that part of Christ's life that really saved us. And so several years ago, 
you wrote a book, Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. Tell us, what is the scandal of the cross? Interestingly, um, it's because of the, the emphasis in some Christian circles on the resurrection that we wanted to write this book on recovering the scandal of the cross because the cross uh, was sort of something that had to be overcome. And we did that by emphasizing uh, the resurrection. So you say the word cross softly, and then really loudly you say the word resurrection. And uh, in, in my uh, background as an evangelical, it's, I think it's true to say that even Good Friday, mm-hmm. uh, sermon, Good Friday sermons were often about the resurrection of Jesus. And I remember preaching at a community-wide, you know, all the churches got together for a, a Good Friday service. And I, so I was preaching on the, the crucifixion in Luke's gospel, and someone came out afterward to, you know, shake your hand and so on. And this person said, well, Dr. Green, but what about the resurrection? Mm. And, and I said, Sunday's coming. That's right. <laughs> but first there's the cross. The language, scandal of the cross, you know, that language comes from Paul. From First Corinthians chapter one, where uh, he says, uh, Paul says that he preaches Christ crucified, a scandal to Jews of foolish and foolishness to Gentiles, mm-hmm. and so what we were trying to do in the book is is try to take into account what it means to say uh, in a missionary context, but also in a, a, a church context, congregational context, what it means to. Uh, preach Christ crucified, a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. As we think about that, I mean, I, you're saying it and I totally know what you're talking about. So often the focus is only on the resurrection. And I can even say that brings up, you know, things in me like, well, that's where the life is. And so it's good to have this conversation to just think more deeply about it. And so what is it about the cross of Christ that defies everything that power stands for. Yeah, um, if you don't mind me pushing just a little bit on the question. Absolutely. uh, I I think what the cross does is actually rearranges how we think about power. And so uh, you might start talking about, uh, you know, messianic politics or uh, the the use of power in a way that's in line with what Jesus is doing. But, I mean, you're right. The bottom line is it doesn't look like anything that, that we think should be. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you look at that text in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, why is the cross a scandal to Jews for Paul? And the answer is pretty clear because Deuteronomy uh, 21 tells us that anyone who's hung on a cross, anyone who is hung on a tree, uh, is cursed by God. And so you have this weird... Okay. A paradoxical, oxymoronic putting side by side of Christ, which means anointed one, mm-hmm. next to crucified, which by the first century was read in terms of Deuteronomy 21, uh, anointed one, cursed one. It doesn't make any sense. Right. And, you know, Paul picks up on that in Galatians 3 when he talks about Jesus becoming a curse for us. Okay. And you find the language of, of being hung on a tree in the book of Acts because the early church knew that the proclamation of Jesus on the cross was a problem in the wider world. But they didn't, you know, sweep that under the cover. 
uh, put it under the carpet where nobody would notice it. They just went ahead and admitted it and then tried to interpret it. There's a related thing with with uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 <clears throat> when he talks about foolishness to the Gentiles because it's the same problem. It's just that it doesn't have the, the biblical background to it. And that is death, worship of a dead man, uh, worship of someone who is is completely humiliated. Mm-hmm. I mean, crucifixion, whatever else it is, is sort of the ultimate pushing to the margins of a person uh, in humiliation, in scandalous humiliation. So I don't know if you've seen this. There's a, a piece of graffiti that comes from about 200, uh, AD 200, a piece of graffiti that has a boy worshiping what looks like a donkey on a cross. And, no, and the and the phrasing is uh, Arximenos, the, the boy's name, worships his God. Well, it's clearly a way of saying, you you foolish Christians, mm-hmm. you, uh, I mean, the word there is moron, you moronic Christians, mm. uh, look what you're doing. You're worshiping a donkey on a cross. It, it just doesn't make any sense. And yet, <laughs> that's precisely what we do, is we worship yeah. Jesus, who was crucified. Then when we think about a scandal to the Jews in that term, in those terms, it's more like, and I'm just trying to break this down for my brain, really, you mm-hmm. know, they just could not fathom that their king would be defied in this way. Is that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. I mean, you know, reading as Christians and reading through the New Testament back in the Old Testament, we say to ourselves, oh, looky here, look at this, look at that. And we see various ways in which we might anticipate exactly what happened. I mean, you look at, at the story of Joseph, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, obviously isn't crucified, but I mean, he he is at the height and then he's in the depth, right? put in prison, and then brought back as, the, as like the ruler uh, who can organize uh, Egypt. Uh, you look at the the righteous sufferer in the Psalms, humiliated, offended, uh, and yet righteous. You look at the the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There, there are various stories that, that go through that low spot on the way to the high spot. So there are ways of seeing this. And of course, Christians, uh, taking their cues from Jesus himself, have read Isaiah uh, chapter 52, chapter 53, in those terms, although the word Jesus, I'm sorry, the word Christ doesn't even show up in Isaiah mm. in chapter 53. It's the servant. And so there's a couple of steps. You have to sort of be formed oh, interesting. theologically to be able to read it that way. And so, you know, later Athanasius would say, oh, just look at look at Isaiah 53, how clear it is uh, <laughs> that the Messiah would be a suffering Messiah. But, you know. Before Jesus, that's just not part of, of uh, the literature of Judaism. It's not the way you think. You actually would think in some ways the opposite. Not not a suffering Messiah, but uh, various forms of, of glory, various forms of honor. Uh, whether you thought in terms of military power, you still thought in terms of someone with with status, uh, someone with with, you know, clearly God's hand on them. Right. And it doesn't look like in the end, Jesus has God's hand on him. And so 
they say, you know, if you're really the son of God, come down from the cross. He because he doesn't look like it. He doesn't look like we were what we were looking for. Ah, oh, that helps me. Well, as we look forward and we're, we start talking about this idea of atonement, there are so many theories on atonement. And you, you know that much better than I do. But in your personal study and understanding of Scripture, how does the cross literally and effectively deal with sin? Yeah, uh, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there are a multitude of ways of doing this. And part of what uh, Mark Baker and I, my co-author with the book, The Scandal, Recovering the Scandal, part of what we wanted to say is uh, there's, there's no one particular right way. Mm-hmm. There are multiple ways of thinking about uh, the significance, the, effect, the effectiveness of Jesus' death, the saving significance of the cross. And so... You know, part of what we try to do in that book was, you know, we would look at Mark or we would look at Paul or we would look at First Peter or Hebrews and we would say, what are the images? What are the metaphors that help us understand what it means to for Jesus to atone for us? One of the images that I find myself gravitating toward the most, though, uh, you actually find it in First Peter chapter two. It's the idea of uh, it's sometimes called representation or identification. It's using the sacrificial language from Leviticus with sinners identifying themselves with the beast, uh, the goat, the, you know, whatever the animal is, uh, and the beast uh, now representing sinners in their sin. And so when First Peter says uh, that Jesus bore our sins on the tree, then there's the same kind of language being used that you find back in Leviticus that speaks to the effectiveness of sacrifice in terms of exchange Mm. and representation. That is, sin and death are transferred to the sacrificial victim, in this case, Jesus, and his purity and his life are transferred to those who receive the benefits of the sacrifice. So you see what I'm saying? The the issue of exchange or identification. One of the reasons that I'm drawn to this this model is not only because I like First Peter, <laughs> uh, but also because it seems to me that how we think about atonement needs to take seriously that it's us who need to be made right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is not outside of us. The problem is inside yes. of us. Yes. And so the cross is the means by which we are cleansed from sin, uh, proceeding through death into life, that opens up new life. And so to, to go back to 2 Corinthians where uh, chapter 5, where, where Paul writes, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Mm. How will the world, which is estranged from God, be brought close? The question is not, how can we take care of God? The question is, how is God going to take care of the problem of the world? And the answer is the atonement, Jesus. And this is one, I think, important way in the New Testament for talking about how that happens. Well, and with that said, as we're talking about sin and how Jesus bore our sin, did the wrath of God, and so many people, you know, will say, oh, the wrath of God, it's like he's the mean dad. Um, did the wrath of God fall on Jesus in the cross? And then what do you think is meant by what Jesus cried out? You know, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that's difficult, but <laughs> no, it's it's these are important questions, though, right? The idea of atonement, I was just trying to suggest, is not about how we can fix God's relationship to us. Uh, the problem is how God can fix our relationship to God. And so, in my mind, the, the way the sacrificial system works uh, in the Old Testament and in the New is, is not by trying to assuage God, you know, to, to get, get God be, to get over his anger. Uh, in fact, uh, if you read Leviticus, you'll notice that it never talks about uh, God's wrath being assuaged by sacrifice. It's a cleansing ritual. Yeah. It's a means by which people are made right or are, are cleansed. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes sacrifice is called, you know, sanctifying offering, yeah. sanctifying sacrifice, because what needs to happen is the estranged relationship, which is, is in us, uh, needs to be taken care of. The blemish of human life needs to be taken care of. So I, I'm quite happy to talk about God's wrath. But if you read through, say, the prophets, you read even into Paul, God puts away God's wrath because God decides to, uh, because God extends forgiveness, uh, not because we did something or Jesus did something that allowed God to do that. God uh, is already putting aside his wrath in the Old Testament because God is the God who is rich in mercy, understanding from generation to generation and so on. The text that you mentioned in Mark and Matthew, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, it seems to me is is not so much related to wrath. It's related to the feeling of abandonment that Jesus has on the cross, which I think you would have to tie back into the Gethsemane story. You know, Father, uh, Abba, Father, yeah, uh, let this cup pass from me. Yeah. If if Jesus is fully entering into uh, the the depth of human uh, suffering, the depth of human experience, then this sense of where where is God has to be part of that. And so uh, Jesus on the cross actually experiences this this sense of abandonment, and it gives expression to it, as I say in the gospel of Gospels of Matthew and Mark. Okay. Well, and here is another question, really, that I, maybe it's not a question, but a thought that I have, this idea of, you know, it's not just God saying, okay, you know, to my son, I'm going to go and put all of this on you. But Jesus is also fully God. So he is actually agreeing to bear our sins. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting turn of phrase. Uh, that Paul uses in Romans 5, when, you know, God loves us so much that Jesus. Yes. It, it should be God loves us so much that God, blah, blah, blah. But God loves us so much that Jesus. And so Jesus clearly is is not somehow separate from God's agenda here. Right. Fully embraces the, the uh, purpose of God in bringing uh, salvation. So I think it's uh, the point you make is a, is an important one uh, because it it underscores that there's there's not like a a break in the relationship between God and God's Son. Right. It is 
God and God's Son. I mean, in fact, you can, I mean, I don't know if you can count them up, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't fairly equal. God sent his son, hmm. um, or uh, Jesus embraces his agenda, his purpose, his, right. his uh, saving purpose. So Christ died for our sins. God sent his son to die for our sins. Those those uh, uh, speak to the close, inseparable relationship in God's purpose for our salvation. Well, and how important that is when you think about reading, studying, memorizing God's word to not take just little portions of it, because that's yeah. when we can really get ourselves in trouble when we're with how we think about God, when we're only taking little portions of it. And then all of a sudden we read something else and we're like, that contradicts itself. But instead yes. it's more, we really need to know the whole canon of scripture. Yeah, I I think uh, I think it's important not to just have a you know a Bible trivia test uh, or Bible trivia game if you've if you've actually seen that. Uh, it's not enough to know the facts. You need to whole, know the whole story. You need to have fluency, so yes. to speak. Yes. Uh, and and not just uh, this kind of factual awareness. Yes, and I do, I mean, and I acknowledge that that comes with time, but that's why I'm yes. constantly even encouraging my kids, you know, begin to develop that practice now yeah. so that, um, you know, you're more, your fluency, it's just like with reading. The more you read, yes. the more fluent you are. The more you speak yes. a language, the more fluent you are. So it's the same with Scripture. Well, uh, a relative of mine wrote me on Facebook back when I was on Facebook. <laughs> uh, and asked me advice about how to read the Bible mm. because he wasn't getting, you know, uh, practical implications from it every time he read it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, I guess he expected that someone with a PhD in New Testament should be able to answer that question, right? Uh, but part of what I had to say is, you know, read the Bible. I mean, forgive me for saying it just this way. Read the Bible for no good reason. Yeah, not because you're trying to get something all the time, but because you're trying to grasp something. You're trying to get your your head around God's big picture, mm -hmm. what God is up to from creation to new creation. And you're when you're reading, you know, these verses or that paragraph or so on, it's all a part of something bigger. That's right. First in its own book, and then it's its own testament, and then it's own in the whole Bible. That's right. Well, and I've been listening to a sermon series on just Scripture in general and different ways. You know, we study it or read it, hear it out loud in long readings, um, just mm -hmm. for the sake of hearing it. Um, memorize it. You know, all the different ways you can go about learning it and how all of those work together to help us understand more of God's full story, but realizing that the Bible is something that is meant to be read over and over again over a lifetime right? without ever getting to the point where you're bored with it. Right. But instead, it's this just the layers become more and more rich the more and more you read it. And I thought, yes, that's so true. It's not about life application all the time. Right. I I think that, I mean, one of the images I have is uh, I get up uh, early in the morning. It's still dark. I put on a shirt. I, I put the buttons in the right in the holes and I get to the end and I discover I've, my, my shirt is, is <laughs> crooked, 
crooked. That's right. Mismatch. You missed one. I did everything right. I put the buttons in the holes. I did everything right, but I started in the wrong place. Mm. And so it didn't work out very well. And I I think of starting in the right place as a basic uh, set of sensibilities, a basic posture. Yes. A basic open-handedness to Scripture, a basic, you know, curiosity and openness. I actually don't know what I'm about to read. Mm. Uh, I've read it, uh, you know, 10 times, but what's God doing with this this time as I read it from this place? Yes. And so this basic gesture, posture of openness, of of understanding rather than overstanding, Mm. uh, standing over, I think that's the place to start. And that means taking seriously uh, that I, I I have yet more to learn. Absolutely. And always. I need to put it, what I'm learning in the larger context of the, the whole narrative of what God is up to. Oh, so true. Well, tell us, why is the resurrection necessary? And what did it achieve? Yeah, that's. I, I think that's such an important question uh, because I hear so often that the resurrection is the main event, and I don't want to take away from that, obviously. Right. <laughs> but the resurrection is the main event, and it overturns the cross. That's the way I heard it talked about, or hear it talked about. The cross was bad, the resurrection was good. But this goes back to the question you asked earlier about the the power and the cross and all that. It seems to me the resurrection is is actually not the overturning of the cross. It's the validation of the cross. Mm. That is, God raised Jesus from the dead and in doing so said, yeah, he's reading the scriptures right. He's representing my agenda. Uh, you see what I'm trying to say? It's the legitimation of Jesus. Okay. Because it looks like from from a you know an earthy perspective that the whole thing's over with Jesus' death. Hmm. It's, you know, you you wagered on this and you lost. Jesus got himself killed. Uh, But now God comes along and says, actually, uh, this is the way I get things done uh, through the the weakness of the cross. Actually, uh, this is the way the power, uh, the divine power operates through the cross. And then the... Uh, the glory that comes on the other side of the cross. So one perspective would be, and you see this in Matthew's uh, narrative of Jesus' suffering and death, one perspective would be, if you're God's son, then come down from the cross. Save yourself. Because if you're really uh, God's anointed one, then surely you can do this. Mm. You can take care of this. It's almost like you know Satan saying, there in the wilderness in the early part of Matthew, the early part of Luke, if you're the son of God, then then do this or do that. I mean, prove it uh, by, by doing the things that we associate with power in this world, bigger, better, more, yeah. et cetera. And uh, what happens with Jesus is not salvation from death, but salvation through death. Mm. Vindication not from death, but vindication through death. Uh, and that's, I think, God's way of saying, you know, there, I know the Pharisees read the Bible this way and Sadducees, they read scripture this way. But Jesus is the one who reads it correctly. Follow Jesus. Mm. 
be the interpreter alongside Jesus. Uh, you see the way Jesus is is eating and drinking with uh, toll collectors and sinners. That's the way. That. That's it. Uh, you see Jesus saying, invite these people to your dinner parties, not those people. That's the way we do things. Yeah. So if it's an authorizing or a legitimating, it's God's stamp of approval on Jesus and his ministry. This is the way uh, I get things done. And and then if you just read the uh, the letters, Paul, 1 Peter, James, you know, the, the Catholic letters and Paul's letters, you see them reflecting on just that sort of thing. The cross is not only about atonement. It's also an exhibit. It's an example. It's a, it's a way of being. And they line out or they lay out the, the cross in terms of a way of being in the world, a way of exercising uh, God's purpose, a way of being faithful, of declaring allegiance to Jesus the King after the cross and resurrection. Well, and so when you say that about the cross, like it's a way of, of living, it's a way of being, is it so much the cross or is it more like we use the cross as that symbol to live like Jesus lived? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, I'm using it. I'm, I'm not saying you need to go get a cross. yourself crucified. Right. <laughs> But but what does happen, in fact, I, w- I would say, you know, Jesus doesn't wake up one morning and say, I'd really like to go to Golgotha. Wouldn't wouldn't that be grand? Wouldn't it be grand to go to the place of the skull? And no, Jesus, you know, if you will, he wakes up in the life. morning and he says, I'm about my father's business. Mm. I'm doing what is necessary according to God's plan, which in a world set against God's agenda uh, can bring him suffering. And so suffering is not something that he's looking for. It's a byproduct of his central aim, his his purpose. And you could say the same thing now about following Jesus. We don't say to ourselves, gee, I, I just hope I can suffer today. Right. Or wouldn't it be grand if the, the church in the America suffered more? Um, suffering is is not the thing. Suffering is a byproduct that may or may not come in the context of faithfulness. So, I mean, a good example is actually in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is addressing his, his, the the people at Corinth about the Lord's Supper. And he puts in front of them the sacrifice of Jesus, the other oriented life of Jesus, the the life of Jesus for you. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he says, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in that context, it's not just, you know, you need to really preach a good sermon about the death of Jesus. It's proclaim in the way you engage with each other, Mm. a life that is shaped by the cross, Mm -hmm. cruciform, a life that is servant-oriented or diaconal, servant-oriented. So Jesus, in that sense, the cross becomes... Uh, a way of, it's like a shorthand way of talking about this whole posture toward other people uh, and toward God's agenda. And it's not just about mm-hmm. how much have you suffered today. Right. That's a really good word for me, just because so often now, you know, people are like, well, I haven't really suffered and this and that. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't mean necessarily that you're not walking 
in the way of Jesus. But like you said, it does, what it should do is call us back to a place of saying, Lord, help me to be about your yeah. business. Yeah. Whatever yeah, that it, looks like. The, the logic just doesn't work. You know, I can say I can be faithful to Jesus and that causes suffering. But that doesn't mean that if I'm suffering, it's because I've been faithful to Jesus. That's right. And it doesn't mean that the, the sure the result of. is suffering. Yeah, so it, it, it can be part of, of reality. And I think living in this day and age, we have to take seriously that bearing witness to Jesus mm-hmm. can come with costs. Absolutely. Uh, but we don't go out looking for costs. We go out looking to bear witness to Jesus. Mm. Yes, good perspective for sure. Well, and then when as we're talking about the resurrection a little bit, I mean, just this the simple idea that while it's not simple, it's a common idea that Jesus' resurrection overcomes death for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems to be the most commonly held idea when someone says, "What did the resurrection achieve?" Does that make it too simple? No, I just think that it's like the different perspectives in the New Testament on the cross. Uh, The the resurrection is also an event that is capable of multiple. uh, I mean, it's it's the wealth of possibilities there are are so important. Uh, And so when I talk about the legitimation or authorization idea, I'm really thinking about how the Gospels portray Mm. Jesus' death as the culmination or the uh, the acme, the high point, it holds together uh, his life. The resurrection then is the affirmation that, yes, in fact, uh, that life is the life I'm calling you to, mm. uh, I'm enabling you to do, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but if you look at, at, say, Paul in 1 Corinthians, or even in Romans, you, you get the, the clear notion that the, the enemy, the big enemy is big D, death, right. a capital D, uh, as, as if death is itself almost like a God, mm. uh, a power over against Christian life. And uh, it's the same way happens in Romans 6 with the notion of sin. Sin is almost like a capital S sin, mm-hmm. not simply a bunch of things that we do, mm-hmm. but a power that enslaves us. And so what happens with the resurrection, the death resurrection of Jesus, is that those powers— are overcome mm-hmm. by God. The, the question is, who are you going to serve? You can serve sin, you can serve God, mm-hmm. uh, but you're going to serve. That's who right. are you going to follow? And so what happens uh, with the cross and resurrection is that God makes possible uh, that we are no longer enslaved to sin, mm-hmm. but can live out our real human vocation as people made in God's image, as a consequence of the empowerment that is given us through uh, the resurrection. You could also say, and you get this you know, clearly in Acts chapters 1 and 2, the resurrection leads to the ascension, the exaltation of Jesus, which leads to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so the coming of the Spirit is uh, very much a, a, a consequence of, wrapped up with, the notion of resurrection, all of which is tied to the grand picture of God restoring God's people and with God's people, the whole cosmos, uh, in order to 
uh, fulfill the original purpose God gave us in creation. Hmm. Well, lastly, what is something you feel like believers often miss in the story, in the passion story that you really feel is helpful for people to understand? I think that the, it's, it's some of what we've already talked about, but it's, it's this putting together things that shouldn't be put together. Mm. Mark's gospel, for example, tells us clearly, but so do Matthew and, and uh, Luke. Jesus is king. Uh, Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Christ. That should not lead to the cross. Mm. Uh, and so what happens with the stories of Jesus' suffering and death is in some ways the opposite of what one would anticipate. Jesus' death should put an end to things. Uh, it should prove that he isn't what he said he was or what people said he was, but it actually does the opposite. It just shows that the kingdom of God is hidden because we don't have eyes to see it because we're looking for the wrong things. Mm. But if you have your your you know mind, as they say these days, your mind blown, your imagination opened up. That's right. Uh, to take seriously what is actually happening right in front of you, then suddenly there's an inversion, a topsy-turviness mm -hmm. that comes to expression in the cross. This is the cross of Christ. It shouldn't be that way, but there it is. And that becomes, in a sense, the key to unlock so much of the, 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 the strangeness yeah, of the, the Christian story that brings up uh, the poor that is good news to the poor, that brings sight to the blind, that uh, brings invitations, like etc. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be with me and just dig into that a little bit more. It's always helpful for me to talk to someone who has a greater depth and a greater wisdom than I do. So I appreciate your time. Great to be with you, Amber. Do you know someone who would be encouraged or challenged or simply enjoy this conversation about Jesus and the cross? If someone pops in your mind, I would be so grateful if you would take a moment and share this episode with them. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.